Good morning. Like Tark said, my name's Char. I'm from what is called the North Bay. But I have a theory that if you can't see the bay from anywhere in your city, it's not considered the North Bay. Um, I'm from Santa Rosa, uh, California. It's right off 101, just north of here. And I've lived there for about 10 years. And uh, yeah, it's just my pleasure to be here with you guys this morning. So I'm going to be teaching out of John chapter 11 um, about Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And so if you need a Bible, you can just lift up your hand when we given to you. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. I know you guys read out of NIV, which is totally cool with me, but sorry, I actually don't even own an NIV. So um, I asked to borrow one. They said no. Um, so I'm just going to read out of the ESV. So um, as you're turning there, though, I'd like to just talk for a moment about this passage of Scripture. Now, one of the greatest objections to the Christian doctrine of the love of God is that there is so much pain, so much suffering, and so much death in the world. Now, John 11 is one of those portions of Scripture that gives us so much insight into the heart, the will, and power of God toward us in the face of suffering and death. Now, the thing is, it's not necessarily one, or excuse me, it's not necessarily the kind of comfort that we would ask for, the kind of comfort that so often we would expect from the Scripture. Now, if you know anything about children's Bibles, if you have one, if you've had young kids, you'll know that Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus, is actually usually found in, you know, Jesus' story Bibles. And you know what's kind of ironic about that? All of them focus on the fact that Jesus raises Lazarus. You know, it's one of those happy days, like everybody's sad. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, everybody's happy. You know, and just like those, um, you know, hero stories that we love so much. And I find it funny that as you read the children's storybook Bibles, none of them bring up the fact that Jesus could have stopped this whole situation. Jesus actually could have prevented the whole thing. And that's something that I really want to talk about this morning and I want to focus on. Now, this passage here in John 11 shows us that although God does allow us to suffer and often delays in answering our cries, it doesn't mean that God is heartless or immune to our suffering and pain. Actually, far from it, Scripture presents us with a God who is a complex character and not just this almighty caricature. He is the transcendent God of the universe, and yet he is the God who weeps in our weeping, who suffers in our suffering, and who is outraged by our pain, and who will not idly sit by and watch us be destroyed. Let's read together John 11, verses 1 through 27. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, from the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, the one that you love is ill. Now when Jesus heard it, he said, well, this illness does not end in death. It is for the glory of God 
in order that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. Then after that, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to kill you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him up. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's, falling, if he's fallen asleep, then he'll get better. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, in order that you may believe. Now let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come from Jerusalem to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I believe that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's pray together. Lord, as we have opened up the text of your holy word, Lord, truth, from the dawn of time, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. We pray, Lord, that our, our hearts would be open to you to receive, Lord, your words of comfort, your words of life, Lord that we might live, that we might experience, Lord, all that you have for us. Lord, I think of the words of Paul. All that was written before was written that we, through the patience and the comfort of the Scripture, might have hope. And Lord, we pray that that would be true for us today, Lord, that we would have hope in Christ and in his work of the cross, in his resurrection, in his reigning and ruling power, in his power to subdue all things to himself, to bring to us a new heaven and a new earth. And Lord, we pray that that hope would be alive in us today. Lord, that it would change the way that we see the world. Lord, the way that we see others. Lord, that it would change the way that we see ourselves. Lord, that it would change the way that we see suffering and death. Lord, all this we pray to the glory of Christ in your name. Amen. Now, the first thing that we see in this passage is the fact that 
the God of love that we find in the scripture allows us to suffer. The God of love allows us to suffer. Now, Jesus, upon hearing the news about Lazarus' sickness, comments to the disciples standing around that this particular sickness, that this particular situation is not going to terminate in death. Death, as this chapter will show us, is not the end for Lazarus, nor for any believer in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus does not say that Lazarus will not die. You notice that. But that it doesn't end there. And I love this. We need to step back at this passage and say, what is really going on here? What is the purpose of this story? Why does John record it for us? What are we to take away from it? What are the people in the story to learn from it? And this is it. Jesus tells us. The purpose or end of this story, of this event, is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Many will see and know through this event that Jesus is, in fact, God's unique Son who has been sent into the world. These verses inform us that there is a greater, a deeper purpose behind our suffering. What is it? That God might be glorified and that our trust in Him might be deepened. Now, here's the thing, though. The God of love allows us to suffer, and I have to say, as cliche as it is, real love hurts. Real love hurts. Let's look at a few things from this passage. John makes it known twice in this passage that Jesus does truly, in fact, love Martha, Mary, and Lazarus because what Jesus is about to do and even the, the language that he uses to his disciples seems so indifferent, so unloving, so incredibly harsh. Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. And so he waits longer to go to him. Now, we know that Jesus has power. We've read it in the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark. We know that Jesus could have done something about this situation from where he was. He has that power, even his word, that commanding power. But Jesus remains where he is. He doesn't do anything. And we need this reminder that John gives us here. Jesus truly, in fact, loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus because what he's about to do seems very unloving. And every single one of us, we need this reminder because the things that God will allow in our lives the ways that God will let us suffer, the way that God will actually allow someone that we care deeply about to die will cause us to question the love of God, will cause us to question the care of God. In the midst of tragedy, disciples of Jesus need every assurance of Jesus' love they can possibly get. Now, of course, as I said a moment ago, this doesn't sound like love to us, what Jesus does. And our text might as well say, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus so much that he let Lazarus die. As I said a moment ago, Jesus could have healed Lazarus with a word. He had done it 
We have it recorded there in Luke 7. Remember, it's the, the centurion that comes to Jesus and asks that he would come to his house and heal the servant. And Jesus says, you know, just go your way. Your servant's healed. Jesus could have done that in this situation. And so often, I think when we read this story, you know, we have the bird's eye view of it. We say, oh, it's all okay because, you know, Jesus comes finally and he raises Lazarus from the dead. But maybe it's not okay. And maybe it's okay for us to think that. Because Lazarus really died, actually died. And Jesus didn't come. And the sisters watched him die. They watched their brother suffer to the point of losing his life, of losing the ability and the will to live. And they buried him, and they wondered, and they wondered, where is Jesus? Why isn't he here? Doesn't he know? Doesn't he love us? Where is he? Where is God? This was real death. This was real loss. And Jesus didn't show up to stop it. And unlike most people, if you read the whole story, Lazarus dies twice. I mean, that's really sucky, you know? Talk about the short end of the stick. If that's not enough, Jesus adds this. You're almost glad that Martha and Mary and Lazarus don't hear this. Jesus adds this, Lazarus is dead, and I'm really glad that we weren't there. <laughs> like, what the heck? Jesus, no, 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 no. You can't talk like that. You can't say stuff like that. That's terrible. But if Jesus had intervened, his glory and power would not have been put on display. And people would not have had the opportunity for faith, for salvation, for trust in him. That's the perspective that we need to have in this. But let's go on. Hear Martha's pain when Jesus finally shows up. Can you imagine these piercing words? Lord, if you had been here my brother would not have died. Where were you? Lord, where were you in my pain? Where were you in my tears? Where is the God who answers? Where is the God who is present? Where is the God who sees? Where is the God who hears? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus responds to Mary, your brother will rise again. Martha says to him, I know that. At the resurrection at the last day, yes, Jesus, he will rise again. Martha, I believe, takes Jesus' words about resurrection, about life, as trite words of comfort in regard to her pain. She affirms, like every good Jewish girl would, that Lazarus will rise on the last day. And she identifies here this moment with a larger hope of Judaism, that the last day there will be this great resurrection of the dead, the just and the unjust. 
the just to receive eternal life and joy and bliss with Yahweh, and the unjust to everlasting shame and contempt. She knows this. And I believe at this point, Martha has an abstract and corporeal view of God's work. Whatever Martha means by her affirmation of Jesus, she does not expect that he can do anything to help her. He, she does not expect that Jesus can do anything to help Lazarus at this point. But her comment invites Jesus to reveal this profound truth about himself, and I'm so thankful that it did. Because these words have brought great comfort to my own soul. A year ago in July, my wife and I, uh, we had our our baby girl uh, in Santa Rosa, like I said, about 45 minutes up the road. And she was beautiful, healthy. It's our first girl. We've got two, two boys as well. And it was just this glorious moment. My wife, you know, gets her girl, and she's so excited, and I'm so excited because girls are just daddy's pride and joy, right? And everything's great. Everything's healthy. Everything's wonderful. About 10 hours later, we find that Evelyn, my daughter's name, she's not able to breathe. She's having heart palpitations. Something's going on. The doctors diagnose her with uh, a congenital heart disease. Now, my family, we're very healthy people. Not only do we have a history of health, but we eat healthy. We do health, right? We like it. It makes us feel good. And so we're like, what is happening? How is this possible? And and just in that moment of just total bliss and and glory and, and just thankfulness to God, all of a sudden all of our hopes and dreams are just dashed to pieces. Our daughter has heart disease. What are you talking about? Yes, she has what's called TGA, transition of the great arteries. Her arteries are switched and she's suffocating. And she's going to have to need, she's going to have to have open heart surgery. Oh man, so that night we headed down to Stanford. And we went through just, you know, all of that as we watched her being wheeled away and what's going to happen to her and we don't know and we're afraid. It's, oh my gosh, it's the, the worst thing that you can ever imagine as a parent. Just all those questions. Hindsight, I'm so thankful. She had surgery five days later, successful. She's healthy today. She's a year and a month old. She's absolutely gorgeous, wonderful. But I I cannot tell you just the fear, the wonder, where is the Lord and why isn't he answering our prayers? We know that he can switch those arteries if he wants to. He has the power. He has the authority. He gives life. He calls the things that are not as though they are. And yet he didn't answer the things that we were asking. And so we were so hopeful in words like these that though Evelyn were to die, we know that in Jesus there is resurrection and there is life. Death is not the end for those that believe in Jesus. And so Jesus says there to Martha, he says those wonderful words of truth, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, Stephen, Joseph, Philip, Andrew. Those are all Bible names. I'm trying to think of names that this is like apply to us. And maybe you have those names. Do you believe this is the question of the text? Do we in fact believe this? That whoever believes in Jesus, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes 
in him shall never die. Now, Jesus' concern here is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what happens on the last day to a personalized belief in him who alone can provide it. I love this. This is from Frederick Bruner. He says, Jesus makes eschatology, that's end times, existential. The future, the present, hope visible, the then, now, the thing, a person. Jesus says, everyone who has eternal life and believes in him will never, ever die. And we think, well, Christians die just like everybody else. What's he talking about here? Well, yes, except the Bible teaches when Christians die, when those who die that have put their trust in Jesus, his work on the cross, his resurrection, that their death is not an eternal death. It is not final. Jesus has made death for believers a conquered, superseded event of minimal duration. I love that. Jesus has made death for believers a conquered, superseded event of minimal duration. The believer, the one who already enjoys resurrection life, this side of death, will in some sense never die. Death is not the end for those of us who believe in Jesus. Again, Jesus is seeking to draw out Martha's faith to deeper waters, and really this whole event is. And I believe truly that our sufferings are meant to do the same thing. You know, Paul has that moment in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where he says, we were in such a terrible situation that we despaired of all life. We despaired of, like, we're going to die. It's over. And then all of a sudden they're like, wait a second. We have resurrection in Christ. What are we worried about? Like, it just brought them so much hope, so much peace. Like, this isn't the end. Even if the ship goes down, this isn't the end. No, no, no. The end is far more glorious than anything we can possibly imagine. Jesus is inviting Martha to a deeper understanding with a deeper faith in his person and work, which will result in a radical reshaping of her hope. A radical reshaping of her hope. Now, the text goes on, not to leave us there, the text goes on, though the God of love allows us to suffer, the text goes on to tell us something even greater. And it's this, that the God of love weeps with us and for us. He is outraged at our pain and he enters into our pain. The story goes on. Martha, upon hearing the words of Jesus, goes back to Mary and she tells her, listen, the the teacher's here and, and he's asking for you. And so Mary gets up she runs out the door. Now, all the professional uh, crying people that were from Jerusalem, um, they notice that Mary's crying, and they're like, oh, she must be going to the tomb. Let's go with her because this is our job. We cry with people. Professional mourners. That's a weird thing, isn't it? So they all, you know, are running down the street, and all of a sudden they come to Jesus, and there they see Mary, and she's at the feet of Jesus. And she has the same words as Martha. Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. Lord, where 
were you? And it says in that moment that as Jesus looks at Mary, as Jesus looks at the other Jews crying, even though they're kind of putting it on a little bit, right, because they're professionals, as he just looks at this whole situation of hopelessness, at suffering, pain, at despair, we're told that Jesus groans deep within himself and he begins to weep. He begins to cry. Now commentators go back and forth. Some say, oh no, it was just the trickling of the tears. Some translations say that Jesus literally began to bawl. Just convulsing, shaking. Great sobs coming from his eyes and just fully expressing his grief. And then Jesus asked, where have you laid him? They respond, come and see, Lord. And so there they are. They go to the tomb. And Jesus stands in front of the tomb again. And again, he groans within himself. And then he tells them, listen, remove the stone. And Martha, no, 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 he stinks. It's been four days. The body has begun to decompose. Jesus responds, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God, Martha? And then Jesus prays this beautiful prayer to the Father, that the Father has heard his cry, his prayer, and that he's going to answer. And then Jesus in that moment, remember, groaning within himself, probably the tears still on his face, he shouts, Lazarus, come out! And the man comes out of the grave, he's wrapped in all the rags, and they tie him and they cut him loose and he goes free. He's alive. Jesus has brought hope. He's brought the dead to life again. It's this amazing story. It's an amazing story. You know, it's interesting to note, though, the different ways that Jesus responds to these two sisters, isn't it? With Martha, Jesus speaks to her in a God-like fashion. It's, she's in her pain. Lord, where were you? I am the resurrection and the life. You know, that's almost how we kind of picture it, right? Listen to those words of truth, those words of power, those words of authority. Yet when Jesus sees Mary, he doesn't do any of that. Not at all. He doesn't give her some theological truth to wrestle with. But instead, he mourns with her. He enters into her pain and suffering. How awesome, how comforting to see and to know that God in Christ identifies with the pain of the world. He is pained by our pain. He weeps with us and for us. Now, we're told that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews weeping, Jesus groaned within himself. I mentioned that a moment ago. Now, theologian and Bible commentator Don Carson says that everyone interprets this too mildly. The language here that's used is that of anger and distress. And it was a term that they would use for horses that were snorting with rage. Picture that on Jesus, right? Like, I don't even know what that looks like. I don't even know how to do that. Maybe you do. I can't imagine what that would look like. Jesus is angry. Jesus is raging angry. Who is Jesus angry at? 
Is Jesus angry at God for letting this happen? Is he angry at himself for waiting too long? Dang it. Thought I had more time. Is he angry at Mary and the Jews for weeping? Come on, I'm the resurrection and the life. What's your problem? Don't you believe? Where's your hope? Where's your trust? No, he's crying too. I think we can only deduce that Jesus is raging at death. So Jesus is raging at death. He's angry. He's crying. He's depressed. Doesn't this all seem strange to you? Jesus knows the end of the story. Yet, he doesn't roll up on the scene and tell everyone, just get used to it. Everybody dies. Don't you know that? Ten out of ten people. That's life. Buck up. Get a little stronger skin. He doesn't do that. Nor does he roll up and say, relax, I'm the resurrection and the life. Don't trip, right? Even though he is. And it's true. It's the truest of things that there that is, that exist. That Jesus is the resurrection and the life, yet he doesn't do any of that. No, Jesus enters into our pain and our suffering. He mourns with us. He's angry with us. Jesus is looking at our greatest nightmare, the loss of life, the loss of a loved one, and of love, and he is incensed. He's mad at evil and suffering, and even though he's God, he's not mad at himself. Why not? If Jesus is God and he's the one that created all things and knows all things, shouldn't he be mad at himself? Why not? Well, first, it means that evil and death are the results of sin and not a part of God's original design. We find that in Genesis chapter 3. God did not make a world filled with sickness, suffering, and death. No, that was the result of man and woman's rebellion against God. They sought life through knowledge, and instead, they got death. God offered them life through trust. And no, they took their hands, reached for life through knowledge, and received death. So sin, suffering, and sickness are not the result of God's work, but of man's work. God did not make a world filled with sickness, suffering, death. Now, isn't it strange, I was thinking about this thought, that even though people die all the time, and we are often faced with our own mortality, that there is still something inside of us that says it shouldn't be. I mean, that's a really crazy thing. My, my wife, she's a part American Indian, and she had a great-grandma that lived to be 110 years old. 
And you know what they said when she died? Too bad. Tragic. Man, she lived to be 110. Like, nobody does that. Nobody lives that long. That's, that's great. That's like four of my lives almost, you know? That's amazing. And yet we still look at that and say, oh, tragic. It shouldn't be. It seems so wrong. I feel so cheated. Why? It's because death was never meant to be. And you know that this is what Jesus is raging at as well. This was never meant to be. This was never God's intention. This is not what God had for us. And yet here we live in a fallen world full of sin, full of suffering, full of pain, full of death. Well, the question is, well, if God isn't happy with the world as it is, why doesn't he just show up and do something about it? Why doesn't God just show up on the scene and destroy all evil? Well, that shows a lack of self-knowledge if we have that mentality. The Bible says, and each of us know this deep down, that so much that is wrong with the world is wrong because of the human heart. It is we who have caused much of the misery of life here on earth because of our selfishness, because of our pride, because of our cruelty, because of our anger, because of our oppression, our lust for power that brings war, because of violence. So what does this mean? This means that if Jesus were to show up on the scene with the sword of God's wrath to eradicate all evil, that none of us would have lived to tell the tale. Nobody would have lived to sing the praises of Yahweh, to testify of his justice. We all know that we have evil and self-centeredness deep inside of us. However, Jesus does not come with the sword of God's wrath. Jesus instead comes with nail-pierced hands. He doesn't come to bring the judgment. He comes to bear it, we're told. And this passage reveals this. If you go on to read the rest of John chapter 11, you find that this is the final sign that Jesus does that seals his doom. It's the nail in the coffin. Jews that came from Jerusalem, they see what Jesus did. They go back and testify to the religious leaders. He raised the dead. He raised Lazarus. It was this amazing thing. And you know what the religious leaders do? They all get together and say, that's it. If we don't stop this man, we're going to lose our authority. The Romans are going to come in. They're going to destroy our nation. He must be put to death. This is the sign that seals the deal. Jesus knows all of that. Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that if he raises Lazarus from the dead, that it means that he's going to death. Jesus knows that in order to raise Lazarus from the grave, he's going to have to put himself in the grave. And the scripture tells us that Jesus knew in order to raise us from the dead, in order to fulfill this promise of being the resurrection and the life, he was going to have to put himself in our place, dying our death, being buried in the ground where we belong. I love what Tim Keller says 
about this. He says, this is why when Jesus approached the tomb, instead of smiling at the prospect of putting on a good show, he was shaking with anger and tears on his cheeks. Maybe he was able at that moment to feel the jaws of death closing in on him, and yet knowing and experiencing all of that, he cried, Lazarus, come out. And the witnesses said, oh, see how he loved him? But we must behold how he loves us. He became human, mortal, vulnerable, killable, all out of love for us. See, here's the truth. I have had moments, and I know that you have had moments, I know that you will have moments where you ask, where is Jesus? He's hanging on a tree. Where is Jesus? He is bearing your sin. Where is Jesus? He is plunged in God-forsakenness so that when you die, so that when I die, death is not the end. He was cast out so that we could be brought in. This is the truth of the gospel. Where is God in our suffering and pain? He is with us. He is with us. And though we might ask that question, where is God? Why isn't he showing up? He did show up. And he showed up once and for all, Hebrews tells us, that he might end all suffering and might give us an eternal hope and a new heaven and a new earth with him. Another note on why did he do it? Of course, he did it to eradicate suffering and death and sin. Why did he do it? Why did he suffer for us? Well, I love what George MacDonald says about this. George MacDonald says, The Son of God suffered unto death, not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. As I said a moment ago, he did it so that our suffering wouldn't end in death, but instead, the end of our suffering would be a glorious resurrection and a new heaven and a new earth. He did it to bring us back into the fullness and freedom that God had always had intended for his creation. You know, the story of the raising of Lazarus is actually the gospel in miniature form. If you think about it, you know, the ones whom the Lord loves are sick. They're sick with a deadly disease that is going to eradicate them. And yet, he delays for years and years, centuries even. And then he shows up on the scene unexpected. And he speaks his truth about his person about his power, about what he's here to do. He's here to raise the dead to life. He's here to lead us into all the fullness of life. But he doesn't stop there. He enters our pain. He becomes the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. He is, as Isaiah 53 calls him, Yahweh's suffering servant. 
come to take away the sin of the world. And finally, showing the display of his mighty power, he lays down his own life and takes it up again, destroying the power of death that held us and calling us out of the grave to new life and one day bodily resurrection. Jesus takes the hit so that when we die in this life, death is not the end but only a shadow. What glorious news. What hope we have. Some closing thoughts here. If death is in fact a shadow for the believer, if physical death is not the end, but there's something afterwards and what the scripture tells us is that it is more glorious than we can possibly imagine. I always think about that scene, you know, in, in Star Wars. My kids love Star Wars right now. But, you know, you know the part with Obi-Wan Kenobi, Darth Vader, you know, they're fighting. Episode four, uh, episode four, whoa. Yeah, episode four? No. If you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. That's a terrible, terrible uh, English accent there. But that moment, though, you're like, whoa, wow. Like, it's pretty rad. It's pretty hot become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. I think of the new heaven, the new earth, I think of the resurrection in those terms. More glorious, more wonderful, more authentic, more real than what we have here and now. Not less, but more. And Christ came, he suffered, he died, he rose again so that we might inherit that. Now, what does that mean for us? If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, what does it mean to believe that? It means that death is only a shadow. What does it mean for today? Well, to the extent that the resurrection is real to you, it will change everything about the way you live in the present. You know, through the hope of the resurrection, we can do exactly what Jesus did. We can lay down our lives. We can give ourselves to God fully and completely knowing that he won't crush us because there was one who was already crushed for us. Having this hope of the resurrection, we can live out the gospel in a real way a real and tangible way. You know, it's so hard for us sometimes to face suffering, um, to, to, to see somebody who, who's disabled, to see somebody who's stricken with disease. It's so hard for us to lose money. It's so hard for us to lose power. Why is that? It's the same in the world as it is in the church. Why is that? It's because we believe and act as though this life is the only life that we have. But if the resurrection is true, this is not our only life, nor is it our best life, but the best is yet to come. And I love the, 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 the call to worship in the beginning from Peter, because the best is yet to come and it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved, protected by God for us. What hope we have. Now, since the best is yet to come, it means that we can freely give our bodies in obedience to God to his use for his glory. We can give ourselves to serve others for their benefit and not just to feel good about ourselves. 
you know, if, if we know that this is, the only, if this is not the only world, the only body, the only life we are ever going to have, that one day we will have a perfect, a real, a concrete life, then think about it. Who ultimately cares what happens to us in this life? We can work the most menial tasks. We don't have to be something according to the praise of this world because we're already something according to the praise and the evaluation of God. He has made us partakers of the divine nature. You don't need any more stamp of approval than that through the work of Jesus. It's amazing. You don't have to be destroyed to be destroyed by the loss of a loved one. You don't have to be destroyed by the loss of a dream job. You don't have to be destroyed by the loss of your ideal situation. You don't have to be destroyed because of a life of singleness. You know, in heaven, nobody's going to be married anyway. So, hey, you're, you're ahead of us. Right? We don't have to be destroyed by these things. Oh, God is just, you know, he's overlooking me. Really? Look at the cross. You think you're overlooked? No, you're loved. You are dearly loved. Jesus was single and he was the most whole human being who ever lived. You are loved. Or a hard marriage. Wanting to get out of that. Wanting to be freed from that. That's real. No, we don't have to be destroyed by these things because the best is yet to come. We can face the hardest things, the worst things with joy and with hope. And last thing, I promise. Finally, only through the resurrection can we be comforters like Jesus? Only through the resurrection are we able to be truly human and present with people in their suffering, entering into their suffering, bearing their pain, bearing their loss. We're able to weep over sin, suffering and death in the world and not be overcome and destroyed by it because we know and have hope in the one who overcame sin and death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The resurrection, the hope that we have in Jesus enables us to be these ministers of God's grace. You know, there is a broken world outside of those doors. And it's in here too. And God is calling us to be ministers in a real world where people don't think God is showing up, where people wonder about the love and the goodness and the presence of God in their life. And God is sending us, not just to say like, hey, just get your eyes off yourself. No, God is sending us to be ministers, to enter into their pain as well. To become a part of their story and then point to the greater story in Jesus and the hope that we have, sometimes it's not even with words. Sometimes it's simply with the presence. Just being there, crying with, entering into their pain, just like Jesus does. God help us to live out that living hope.